Hi, I'm Reagan, and thanks for listening to my dad's podcast, Lasting Learning. Hey, before we jump into this episode, I've got to ask, have you signed up for the free standards-based grading webinar taking place on September 20th, 2023 at 7 p.m. Eastern time? This 90-minute webinar is perfect for those of you just wanting to get a little bit more information about what standards-based grading is. Whether you're in a school that's already adopted SBG and just need to tweak it, or if you are in a school or district that is traditional, ABCs, 100-point scales, and you're looking at taking things to the next level, and you want to make sure that you know what your kids know, sign up for this 90-minute webinar completely free, no strings attached. Just click the link in the show notes, follow me on Facebook and click the event, sign up, bring some friends, bring some family, bring some colleagues, bring some popcorn and your favorite drink. We'll see you there. Hi, and welcome back to Lasting Learning. This is Dave Schmidt, and uh, this episode's gonna be a little bit different. During the summer months of 2023, I'm offering some free professional learning to you. This summer, I'm going to be releasing special episodes. It's basically going to be an audio book. I'm going to read to you my book, Bold Humility. Bold Humility was first published five years ago. And as a result of that five-year anniversary, I decided to make it available to you, my listeners, this summer. Now, these recordings are not going to be evergreen. They're not going to be out there forever. They are only going to be out for a limited time. So make sure you listen. Make sure you share. Make sure you're willing to grow. Here we go. Bold humility. Chapter two. Are you preparing students for their futures or your past? I'm an 80s kid. I was born in 1977 and spent the bulk of my childhood in the greatest decade ever. I wore knee-high striped socks with short shorts. I listened to Michael Jackson, Tiffany, and Guns N' Roses. My beloved Detroit Pistons were winning championships, and the Detroit Tigers were World Series champions. My childhood was filled with kickball, bike rides, and Mr. Wizard. Today, I have four children of my own. My oldest, almost a teenager as I write this, wears shorts that fall below his knees. My kids watch TV shows that they download from the internet. Kickball has been replaced by Fortnite, and my favorite sports teams probably won't even make the playoffs this year. My childhood was a long time ago, and a lot has changed since then. As a child, I had no internet, no home computer, no clue what my future would hold. I believed that I would grow up to be a truck driver, a meteorologist, and a Navy SEAL. Today, my kids dream of being vloggers and YouTube stars. My kids have no idea what childhood was like 40 years ago. And 40 years ago, I could never have imagined what childhood would look like today. Similarly, 40 years ago, I had no idea what adulthood would look like when I actually got there, and neither did any of the adults I surrounded myself with. Many of us have heard the statistics about the number of jobs that will exist 20 years from now that aren't even ideas in people's heads today. The reality is, we have no idea how many new jobs will exist, because we have no idea what new technologies will be developed, what new consumer demands will be created, and what services will be required. Knowing all of this uncertainty exists, We as educators still try to put a sales pitch on in our classrooms, telling our students why all the content we're exposing them to is important and how it will help them in their future. Yet, all we're doing is telling these students, children with uncertain futures, how that content has helped prepare us for our present, which may or may not be relevant to their future. It's important for us to ask ourselves daily, are we preparing students for their futures or for our past? 
As educators, our job is to contribute to the future. We have jobs that others try to measure in moments of time through daily observations and summative assessments, even though our successes can only be measured in generations. If what we're presenting to our students cannot endure, we must ask if it's something we should be spending our time on at all. Now, don't get me wrong. Standards-based learning is a key to achieving success. Clearly articulating objectives, assessing based on growth and progress, mastery and proficiency are all critical components of, mas of mastery learning and lasting learning and enduring education, but none are the silver bullet. I built my professional reputation, my career on art articulating the importance and relevance of focused standards-based learning and grading. But even I know that SBL, as it's often described, is only a piece of the puzzle, not the piece. In education, we're often guilty of seeking the holy grail and magic pill to cure all and fix what others perceive to be broken. We attend a conference and hear one educator tell a story of what has worked in her classroom with her kids in her community. And we jump on board to try and replicate that program in our school with our kids in our way. And we expect the same results. We chase programs over people. We search for curriculum over creativity. When we don't see immediate results, we drift back to the status quo. And we wonder if the next blog we read, the next professional development seminar we attend, or the next team meeting will reveal the answer we've been looking for. We need to stop looking for the answer and instead continue to look for an answer, realizing that we have millions of children in a multitude of environments with countless unknown futures who all require something a little bit different. I currently work in a state that's adopted the college and career readiness standards. We believe that our work in the K-12 system is to try and prepare our students for success beyond our schools. This is such a great idea, yet one so often misapplied and misinterpreted by the very people responsible for their implementation. Times have changed. As I write this, I'm currently in my 20th year as a professional educator. When I look back on my first year and compare it to this year, I can honestly say I was a mess when I began. Even though I didn't know it then, I can look back and definitively say I had no idea what I was doing almost two decades ago. Prior to becoming a teacher, I attended a great teacher prep university, Central Michigan University. Go fire up chips. And I had a diverse student teaching experience. I was offered a phenomenal mentor as well. But despite all of that, when I began, I was not fully prepared for the challenges I would experience. I may have thought I was, but I was so wrong. The only thing that could properly prepare me for my career was my career. We all recognize the importance job embedded experiences have on job performance. This is why veteran teachers make more money than first year teachers. We tend to believe that because they have more experiences and opportunities to refine and grow their skill sets, they may be more prepared to effectively perform their job duties. We understand that experience in the career is what prepares us for the career. This isn't just true in teaching. It's true in virtually every job or career that you can imagine, whether it's as a fry cook at a local fast food restaurant or an accountant on Wall Street. Whether you have a career in professional sports, education, engineering, public safety, or medicine, often the only thing that truly makes you ready for your career is the career and a lot of grace offered by those who you work with as they see you make mistakes along the way. In K-12 education, we so often lose sight of this and try to convince students and ourselves that by simply completing courses in our predetermined sequence, learning a bunch of facts and regurgitating information, students will be, will be prepared for the real world. It's not just that we think memorizing information will help students as they grow up and enter the workforce. We tend to think it will prepare them for college too. When I look back on my first year of college, I wonder how in the world I'm still alive. I graduated high school with a 3.8 GPA. I was a student council president. I competed in sports and model United Nations. I was a self-described model high school student. Yet my first year of college was a disaster. 
The only thing that helped me find success and graduate from college was my ability to make it through my first year of college. I may have had some book smarts when I entered, but I was lacking a lot of not-so-common sense. I was a disaster. I entered my freshman year on an academic scholarship and started my sophomore year on the verge of academic probation. When we say that we're preparing students to be ready for college and career, are we measuring this based upon their ability to have short-term retention of academic facts? Or are we really providing them with skills and opportunities that will transcend the safety of their K-12 school system and lead them towards long-term success, regardless of what the future holds? Are we giving them, them the persistence, confidence, humility, and curiosity that will lead to future learning? Or are we giving students the answers to questions that exist today without the ability to question the answers that will exist tomorrow? Aside from my role as a public school administrator, I also currently serve as an adjunct professor for a teacher prep college in the Midwest. I get the opportunity to take high school graduates, give them foundational understandings, and try to set them up for a long career. The college students I work with come from a wide range of communities, families, and school systems. They all had the opportunity to apply for college admissions. All were accepted, despite having a variety of past experiences. The college admissions office asks students in their application packet to submit ACT scores, GPAs, transcripts, essays, records of philanthropic service, as well as descriptions of extracurricular achievements. Colleges understand that they should not accept students simply because of a single data point or high school transcript. They understand that people are not defined by one test, by one grade, or by one statistic. We are who we are because of a collection of moments and experiences. As educators, we must get back to embracing that if we are indeed trying to set our students up for success in their careers and college, we're not just in the test prep business. We are in the experience creating business. Yes, we want students to learn, but real learning, learning that lasts, has nothing to do with memorizing facts and figures. Learning that lasts is all about making memories and creating experiences. Great teachers recognize this, and great leaders encourage this. As I write this, it's winter break in my school district. Kids are at home with their families, playing with new toys, attending holiday parties, and enjoying the festivities of the season. Teachers are sleeping in, sipping coffee, and trying to recover from an exhausting first half of the school year. As I write this, I'm projecting myself forward, trying to envision five months into the future, and attempting to predict what the end of the school year will look like. I feel the pressure to have high student achievement, to improve my school accountability scores, and to make my community proud of the work we're doing. The pressure is a definite reality of the educational world we now live in. I know my teachers will feel the same pressure as spring approaches, and they, they will feel the desire to perform, or more specifically, have their students perform well on end-of-year exams and state assessments. I get it. The struggle is real, and so is the pressure associated with it. I know that teachers are doing all they can. They're looking for innovative approaches to increase student success rates. They want to have more students labeled proficient. They want to score learning gains. They want their students to succeed, not just because their professional evaluations are tied to achievement results, but because they know that success this year for a child will result in a greater chance of future success. It's not about the slide. The summer slide has been discussed in schools across the country for the last few years as one of the major obstacles for educators to overcome if we're ever going to be able to reach the lofty academic achievement goals that are set before us. Teachers every spring begin to throw up their hands in frustration, believing that so much of what they've taught over the course of the year will be lost over the 70 plus days of summer vacation, and kids will slide back to where they were months before. Each fall, teachers can be heard grumbling about the fact that they have to begin the year with so much review because students enter the rooms having forgotten nearly everything presented to them the year before. Some teachers are fighting back against this by killing summer fun, 
family vacations, and student innate curiosity by sending home homework sheets and work packets, summer reading lists, and workbooks. They have a belief that by keeping kids' minds busy doing these tasks in the summer, students will be fresh and ready to go when the new school year comes around, as opposed to actually giving students downtime and the ability to learn, reflect, grow, and play. The irony is that often the same teachers who assign summer packets who say to their administrator, I don't check my email at home because it's my time and I need to rest and recover. Too often we think that giving children the chance to be kids and truly explore the world around them and refine their passions without the strict guidance of mundane teacher-directed tasks is a waste of time. We think learning can only happen if we're in charge of it. Not only are our students being given way too much homework during the school year, but now we're beginning to miss the mark in the summer. Now is a good time for me to state that I believe the summer slide is real. It's been proven through countless studies to be a reality. I believe that the problem, though, has little to do with our students, their inability to focus during the summer, or their ability to keep their minds fresh. The fault is actually ours. As I look into the future, towards the spring, when all the big tests are going to be given, Christmas Day will be 150 days in the past. The time period between now and the quote-unquote big test is approximately twice as long as the 77 days that comprise a typical summer vacation. Even 150 days from now, I'd bet that if I were to ask any of my students in May if they could remember Christmas Day, a day that by then would be five months in the past, the vast majority would be able to describe the gifts they received, the time they woke up, maybe even the weather outside. They'd be able to describe in detail a day that occurred five months in the past. I have strong doubts, however, about how many students would be able to remember the content learned from the extra homework packet that was sent home with them over winter break. The issue has nothing to do with whether a child has enough worksheets or books to read to maintain their memories. My own kids have done no Christmas-related worksheets or read any Christmas books since December 25th. The issue is that Christmas Day was made to be an event. It was not presented to kids as a task, a lesson, or something to be memorized like so much of our school-based instruction. It was made into a memory unlike so much that we try to get kids to actually memorize. Because we live in an age of so much accountability in schools, educators everywhere are working extremely hard to introduce students to new content as quickly as possible. But we begin to think that in order to bring about testing success, we must fill every moment of every day with homework, worksheets, workbooks, quizzes, and tests. By the time the big tests arrive, at the end of the school year, students have such fatigue that success doesn't come. Then during the final days of the school year, when we be when we could be celebrating another milestone completed, teachers decide to double down on their efforts to try to avoid the same stress and disappointment the following year by sending home summer packets to prepare students for the next school year and attempt to avoid the infamous summer slide. That following fall, students will arrive back to school after completing the summer packet, take a pre-assessment that still shows a regression of learning, and the panic will begin to grow again. More homework will be assigned each night during the school year, and the cycle will repeat itself. The pattern of behaviors is often encouraged and endorsed by leaders with the best of intentions, both explicitly and implicitly by their own actions towards their teachers and staff. In life, we learn by watching. Babies do not learn how to walk and talk by sitting in a small group and being directed to the proper step cadence and enunciation. They watch adults walking and talking, and they attempt to mimic, failing often at first and quickly improving on their way to mastery. A child does not learn to ride his bike by sitting behind a desk receiving a lecture on the purpose of the spokes, seat, handlebars, and brakes. Their curiosity is aroused by watching others do it, and then they hop on and try it themselves. They receive guidance, encouragement, and support. This is the way learning and mastery happens. 
It's only in the artificial environment of schools that we treat initial struggles as failures and slap labels on individuals who don't conform to the norm. We do this often not because we have any pedagogical basis, but because doing so makes our jobs easier. It allows us to respond to kids in the same way we were responded to in school years ago. We think that it's our responsibility to place hoops in front of kids so they can earn the right to an education by jumping through some the same ritualistic education that we did as kids, as though it's a rite of passage that we all have to endure. Our job is not to make kids endure school, but to encourage them to embrace learning. Your job as an educator is to give kids balance, not to push them over. I was a classroom teacher for eight years and have been a school administrator for more than a decade. I understand accountability and the need to monitor student achievement. It's vital to ensuring success, successful schools and systems. When I began my career in the state of Michigan, teachers were asked to give up three weeks of instruction in the fall to provide the state some of assessment. That's right, in the fall. The reason, as explained by the state-level educational experts behind that system, was to afford the state ample time to analyze results and share them with relevant stakeholders during the school year. Assessing students later in the school year did not provide that same luxury. After years of debate about the validity of a fall assessment, the state changed its system, believing, as many educators do today, that assessing learning after the summer months is not an accurate measure of learning. After all, how can we possibly expect students to remember all that we've taught them last year after three months of playing outside and not doing all of our assigned homework and worksheets? Many believe if we're going to give state assessments, the only way to accurately measure learning is if we measure it near the end of an academic year, like we do now in virtually every state with a spring summative big stakes assessment. Let's get kids to upload more than they download. It's important to remember, however, our job as educators is not to teach kids skills that will last until the end of a school year. Our job is to prepare kids for life, a life beyond school, a life without us, a life that is still unknown, a life that they are living now and will live in the future. What good is it to test students on skills we expect them to master in the spring if we're willing to admit that they won't remember them even a few months later after living in the real world and out of the artificial fishbowl of our classrooms? As educators, our job is not to create lessons but to establish memories. We need to stop saying that we teach content and begin to embrace learning that lasts, education that endures. It's like riding a bike, it really is. We've heard the saying, once you learn how to ride a bike, you never forget, it's so true. Even if you haven't hopped on a bike in years, if you learned as a child, you can get on a bike tomorrow and go on a ride around the block. The learning you acquired from mastering this skill, this skill has endured. This is lasting learning at its finest. Memories last, lessons are forgotten. As educators, our job is to create learners, not copycats. Most of us get that. In classrooms, we put procedures in place to inhibit student cheating. We say we want students to produce original work. On test day, we tell students to use cover sheets, to move desks so they're not seated next to each other, and we monitor for wandering eyes. We wanna make sure that students are not stealing the ideas of their peers. Yet at the same time, we're 100% okay if students copy our words. Why are we okay with students writing down our every word in class and then simply spitting them back to us to show mastery of a topic, but we cringe when thinking a student may do the same thing with a peer? The hypocrisy is real. We say no to cheating when a kid copies a kid, but celebrate it when a kid copies us. We take it a step further when we do our own interpretation of the one of the most popular English language art standards being taught to kids today. Every state in America has a standard similar to this. We teach students to use text to learn and then ask them to, quote unquote, cite textual evidence to prove an answer to a question. 
The intent is to have students base opinions and insights on fact to, to find established evidence to support claims. But we are, what we are often teaching students is that as long as an adult has put an idea into print or a teacher has made a statement to a class, it must be true. Teachers, our job is not to create compliant students who can simply spit back information, but instead to create learners who actively question answers in search of new truths to challenge the thinking of the status quo. If we really want a better world, we have to allow students the freedom to question the realities of our current world. The fault is not with teachers though, it's bigger than that. We're all the products of our environment. We all have employers who set goals, objectives, and agendas. Teachers do what they do because of their attempt to live up to the expectation of those put into authority over them. In America today, there are more than 90,000 public school principals. The vast majority began their careers as classroom teachers. It's reasonable to assume these principals found some measure of success in their classrooms that led them to pursue advancement. As a result, when principals move into their new rules, their new roles, many erroneously seek hire and train teachers who will provide instruction in a manner that resembles what they used to provide in their own classroom. After all, if it was good enough for them, it must be good enough for others. This is the same mindset so many parents bring with them to school meetings when innovative new approaches are discussed by the rare school leader willing to try and break the mold. They're often challenged by the successful parent who judges his or her child's current school by comparing it to the same system they encountered decades earlier when they were a part of it. The pressure to conform to the way things have always been becomes so strong that often the cycle just continues. Unfortunately, our students suffer, and we become more and more entrenched as we prepare students for our own system, not the real world of the future. As a leader, I know I have a distinct charge. I'm a part of the system that I'm trying to change. I understand that great changes in society have often resulted from grassroots movements on the inside. I cannot simply complain about the way things are and wait for an outsider to step in and drive the change I want to happen. I need to be the change. That does not mean that my job is to develop innovative strategies and processes and then impose them on my staff. That defeats the purpose. I don't want anybody to simply copy what I'm doing or saying. I want everyone to play their own part. I'm a firm believer that if I get others to weigh in, I'll not have to work so hard to get buy-in. My job is to hire the best and get out of the way. The single most important responsibility I have is to hire amazing people who are willing to reflect, to grow, and to change. I need people with the required certifications and, qualifi and qualifications, but more importantly, I need people with the right heart. I need people who can answer the question, has it been a good day or a bad day? I need people who have a purpose and a mission and know how to articulate what they do. I need people who are willing to question me, their peers, and themselves. It's only through a reflective culture, a culture of quiet confidence, a culture of collaboration and honest self-assessment, a culture of growth and improvement, that an environment of bold humility can begin to be fostered and developed. And this is where the magic happens. As an administrator, I have to further the conversations that matter to me. Taboo topics only exist in cultures that cherish the status quo. If I allow and engage in public conversations about our most sacred educational traditions, the teachers that work with me will feel the freedom to do the same. The only way to foster change is to acknowledge that there may be better ways to do things. If we want our students to grow and change the world, teachers must model it, and they'll only do so if their principals do the same. Be the change to see the change. We don't ask kids to label the parts of their bike before we help them get on and learn to ride. It's like learning to ride a bike. How to make learning last a lifetime. Once you learn how, 
you never forget. Live Free by Jennifer Quattrucci, an elementary school teacher from Rhode Island. I believe that in a world where children are rushed from place to place, often on devices, we need to create an environment where they are given time and allowed to focus, to think, to create, and to learn. I've always wanted to be a teacher. I can remember being five years old in kindergarten and going home and setting up my stuffed animals and dolls to play school. I would read them stories my father read to me. I would draw and paint and create shoebox dioramas and mobiles based on the stories I loved. My mother and father both encouraged my love of literature. My dad took me and my sister to the library quite often, and my mom would sew outfits based on the storybook characters for me, and sometimes even for my dolls. As I got older, I remained an avid reader and always loved learning. But what I, what I enjoyed most, most of all, was working with young children. I loved helping them learn and seeing them smile when they enjoyed a story or special activity. I spent a great deal of time with my younger cousins, and they quite often became my students as we read and discovered different topics to explore. We experimented with cooking, baking, making up games, taking apart toys, and just having the fun researching different topics with our world book encyclopedias. This is still how I teach today. I've been teaching the inner city of Providence, Rhode Island for more than 23 years. I try my best to provide an atmosphere where children are excited about learning and are allowed to learn at their own pace. Our activities and learning experience are, experiences are hands-on, developmentally appropriate, literature-based, and inspire authentic learning. I have a forthcoming book which includes 180 screen-free, hands-on, creative ideas and lesson plans for classroom teachers of students pre-K through grade 6 called Educate the Heart, Screen-Free Activities for Grades Pre-K through 6 to Inspire Authentic Learning in Your Classroom. It includes ideas for collaborative art projects, proper ways to encourage mathematical discourse, STEM challenges, literacy center ideas, author study activities, and so much more. I hope my book will inspire educators to make the most of their time with their amazing students so we, as a teaching community, can continue to create meaningful moments and provide students with the skills, support, and confidence they need to become their best selves. Bold Next Steps 1. Make a list of five things you love about your school or classroom, the five things you would want to see replicated anywhere by anyone. Then identify two things in your school or class that get in the way of you meeting your professional goals. Schedule a time with your direct supervisor to discuss both lists and what to do with them. Two, doing, during your next classroom lesson, staff meeting, or professional development opportunity, identify three people to assist you in growing. One person will calculate how much time you spend talking during the session. One person will calculate the number of questions you ask others to answer. One person will calculate the number of different people you engage with. Have them turn these stats in once the session is complete. Just knowing others are doing this will give you an awareness, but each time you share, work to improve in each area. Three, make a personal connection with each person you learn with. Keep a journal identifying their passions and interests. Before engaging with them in the future, study what you know, find ways to bring it up, and work to increase your knowledge of them. The more you learn about them, the more you'll learn from them. That concludes this episode of Lasting Learning. Want to learn more? Contact me at schmidto.net. Want to read more or listen to more of this audio book? Just come on back. More Bold Humility will be coming soon.